a news-packed edition of the Boarding Pass. We have return to play format to discuss. We have uh, draft prospects to discuss. We, we know a little bit more about how the NHL will return. Uh, the draft, the lottery, the playoff format, the play-in format. And we're also joined by a very special guest today in Craig Button from TSN. Before we get to him, i got to throw it to Ken as always. Ken Weeb, good to check in with you uh, weekly as always. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent, Marat. Thanks. Uh, busy weekend. Didn't have as much viewing on the television, but read a couple of uh, Ryan Holiday books. We got through The Obstacle is the Way and Ego is the Enemy, so uh, that was interesting and Certainly, uh, during these times, nice to to stimulate the brain. That's for sure. Those books are Jets uh, reading list books, aren't they? That's a wise choice on your part. That is a. That's, those are both Adam Lowry specials, and uh, they both deliver. To have stillness is the key. Will be what I'm starting this week uh, as we move along. Uh, you're going to be as wise as they come. Um, also, as wise as they come is the director of scouting and, and TSN analyst is is Craig Button. Craig, how are you doing out there today? I'm doing really good. Um, I'm I'm in Calgary. It uh, you know it's it's nice out here. The sun's out, and you know we get these long, long days uh, once uh, we get into spring and moving into summer. So we're into about 16 and a half hours of uh, daylight now, and and I love the daylight. So certainly, when from a mood perspective, and with the news uh, coming out with the return to play plan. I think my mood is exceptionally high. Not that it ever gets much lower than that, but certainly I have good reason now to to, to have that mood. Yeah, right on, Craig. Uh, I mean, let's dive right into that. What what stood out to you in terms of return to play format? You know, I think the uh, I think the uh, penny drop for me, and I know a lot of people don't know what a penny is anymore, but there was a time <laughs> when there was a penny uh, in the currency system. But all kidding aside, it really dropped for me yesterday when I stopped and thought about, you know, so there's this return to play plan, and there's no template that the NHL could have for creating this template. I mean, you're, you're essentially starting from scratch, 12 teams in one hub, the scheduling of games, uh, you know, everything that goes with it, the, the health, the safety, you know, the off-ice people, the, the on-ice people, everything, you know, families and everything. This is something the NHL has never had to consider. You know, they, they get the building dates from the teams, they plug in the schedule, they, they go through their, their main dates, their main event calendar, and then the way they go. So when I really stopped and thought about how much effort how much thought had to go in and, and, and collaboration, like, you know, collaboration with, with the players, collaboration, you know, in terms of having uh, potential hub cities, you know, uh, make their presentations, government officials at all, all levels. I, I, really, I really was in, in, in a state of awe. To, to really stop and consider, you know, that that was, that was significant. You know, we talk about hockey returning and we get to watch hockey, but th- this is something that's completely unprecedented in terms of uh, uh, what uh, all leagues, what, what the world was confronted with. I'm just highly, highly impressed with uh, what the NHL has been able to develop and present and I also think they have, you know, flexibility. I think they've also built in flexibility uh, as, as things continue to move forward, hopefully in a continued positive fashion. Yeah, I'm sure there were a lot of sleepless nights amongst, uh, you know, NHL head office folks and a lot, like you say, of collaboration, right? Because in Winnipeg, you know, Mark Shifley was part of the return to play uh, committee, pardon me, um, constantly communicating with the NHL and then back to the players on his team. And from what we understand, some of the return to play rules and guidelines have come from collaboration. And uh, as we speak today, we don't know if the tournament will be reseeded after the play-ins or if there's going to be a fixed bracket. And that's an example of, of some of that discussion uh, as well. Now, you being hunkered down in Calgary, do you have a, a sense of how the initial, um, what your initial perspective of a Jets Flame series might look like? Well, I think it would be pretty, pretty exciting uh, from the aspect of, you know, you got Winnipeg is. Uh, five 20 goal scorers in her forward group. I mean, nobody in the league has more than that. I think there's three teams, there's four teams that have five. Nobody has more. So the offensive prowess of the, of the Winnipeg Jets is very impressive. But the way that the Flames fight them, and 
that's Kachuk and Goudreau and Monaghan and Lindholm and Backlund, they were rounding into form as, as the season came to its pause as well. So when you think about offense, and you, 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 there's probably a saw off there. But really, where I look at a, at a significant advantage, and I think it's something that's really been a positive for the Winnipeg Jets, it's twofold. Number one, Connor Hellebuck, who, in my view, has to be the favorite for the Vezina Trophy with his play this season. And then what the Winnipeg Jets had to do, like their adaptability through the course of the season, you know, with losing the four defensemen, Bufflin uh, not playing, and, you know, you, you, you put players into different roles, you develop other players, and you find out a lot about yourself, and I think that's what the playoffs are about. It's about adapting. So I think with Connor Hellebuck and, and what the Winnipeg Jets have gone through this year, uh, I, I'd give them uh, the edge over the Calgary Flames uh, going into a, a playoff series. Because, again, it, it, it's an old uh, adage, but bottom line is, is that goaltending matters. And if you've got the better goaltending, your chances are better to win than the other team. Craig, let's stay on the Flames for a little bit. Uh, what differences did you see from their game after the coaching change with, with Jeff Ward taking over? I mean, Jeff's a guy that I've known and followed for a long time, dating back to his Hamilton Bulldog days. I mean, how was he able to connect with that group uh, after taking over? It's really interesting to me, Ken. Uh, when I think about, you know, two like last season, you know, the, the Calgary Flames had a lot of success. They, they attacked. They attacked through the neutral zone. They had those forwards. They backed up defenders. I don't know what Bill Peters did over the course of the offseason last year because he changed the way they played. They went to be a dump-in team, and I don't know if that was a direct reflection of what happened versus the Colorado Avalanche, but it didn't work. It, it simply didn't work. It wasn't very good at all. The players weren't uh, being able to play to their potential. And I think it took Jeff a little bit of, maybe not a little bit of time, but some time to, to, to recognize where the team was at and get them back to, to what gave them success and feeling confident about it. That's why when I talk about those five forwards, you know, really – you know, finding their form again. Backlund was back playing center. I mean, Lindholm got back playing with Monaghan and, and Goudreau. I, I still don't understand why you would break up a top line that they had with Goudreau, Monaghan, and Lindholm, put Backlund, who's been a center on the wing. They, they created, Bill Peters created a lot of his own problems, to be quite frank. And uh, I, I think Jeff, you know, as an assistant coach, you know, he, he had to get in there and, and, and you know, understand, okay, what are the areas that we, we got to correct from last year's debacle against Colorado Avalanche, but what are our strengths? I think they were finding that, and they, re, they became a lot better at attacking, holding the puck, making the plays. And Because and, and, if you're going to go ask Johnny Goudreau to dump the puck in and go retrieve the puck, you're not playing to his strengths. He's, he's got to have the puck. He's got to be able to be comfortable making those plays. There's going to be mistakes made, the defense jumping up, up, up into the attack. To me, they started to play a game where they were constantly on their heels, and that, that, that's not a way for success with that group. So I think that Jeff really kind of swung them back to, to what the strength of, their, of the individual games were, and I think it showed up collectively in their game. Do you think that, you know, with that sort of turnaround that he was able to implement back to, you know, the ideal Flames way of playing, like you say, does the pause hurt his ability to keep that momentum going or maybe even help it in giving him and his staff a chance to, to continue to regroup and, and reposition the Flames as the way they want to see them? Yeah, you know, Murad, I think that, uh, you know, they're not going to lose momentum because of it. I, I think the players... You know, they know what they're capable of. You try to put players in the positions that will maximize their abilities and maximize their contributions. I think Jeff has done that. And I think that the style of game that they play, you, you know, suits their personnel. There's not just one style of play for all teams. You, you look at your personnel, you look at your players, and then, okay, what gives us the chance uh, not only individually for those players to be at their best, but collectively for our team. So I, I don't think they're going to lose anything from that. I mean, everybody's in the same boat. Uh, if you were trying to make these adjustments coming back that weren't already made, I, I would think that they, they, they'd have a tougher time. I think the Calgary Flames' biggest challenge is in the net. 
Uh, you know, Cam Talbot and David Riddick have shown some really, really good stretches of strong play where they were real solid. And then almost 180 degree turns where they've been really poor. And, you know, inconsistent goaltending is something that is, uh, that'll plague any team. And I, I, for me, that's their biggest problem. So how do you get those goaltenders back into a rhythm, back working on, in, in the areas that allows them to be in those good, consistent stretches instead of being in those uh, uh, periods where, where, where they were really fumbling around, uh, to use a phrase. And, you know, the playoffs, you know, once you find a dent in, in, into an opposing team's goaltending, you know, it's really hard to find a way uh, to fix that. And I, I think that's the Calgary Flames' biggest obstacle going into the play-in series versus the Winnipeg Jets. Craig, what's the biggest challenge for Craig or for Paul Maurice and his coaching staff? I mean, yes, you have several months to prepare for an opponent, but they only played once this year. It was in October in an outdoor game. You can't really take much from that. And I mean, everybody is going to be in a situation where you haven't played for you know three or four months. I mean, is there a potential to over prepare and? not even know what you're going to get necessarily from your own group. Yeah, well, I think that Paul has, has the benefit of lots of games coached in the National Hockey League. And, you know, one of the things you, you learn what not to do as you go through that. So, you know, whether, whether it's Paul going to the Stanley Cup final, you, you have a lot of opportunity to draw on those experiences. And, you know, Paul is, is, is understanding of like, okay, what do I need to give the players without paralyzing them with too much information? I, that's the benefit of having Paul Maurice and all of his experience. I, I think it's significant. And then you go to the shorter term, which is this season, you know, dealing with all the uncertainty coming into the season and then dealing with some of the challenges they had over the course of the season. I, I think Paul did a masterful job with the Winnipeg Jets this year. And I, I think those players uh, in that group really found a way to be successful, you know, understanding, okay, you know, you lose Adam Lowry, you lose players at different points in time. You don't have Truba and Bufflin and Sherratt uh, on the back line and you, you lose Josh Morrissey but at the, like, to injury. But now, you know, you find out about other players and they find out about themselves. So I, I don't think that Paul or, or the coach and the coaching staff goes into a series, you know, back on their heels, even though they only played the Flames uh, back in October. You know, that was a very different time for the Winnipeg Jets. And they're going to be a healthy team and they're going to be a team, again, when I talk about, uh, you know, the playoffs are about adapting, adapting to different challenges, players, you know, being asked to do different things at different moments uh, over the course of a game and a course of a series. I, I think the Winnipeg Jets have done a wonderful job this season of, of really personifying that, uh, not only individually, but with their group. And that goes right to Paul and the coaching staff. I want to ask you about a specific Jet uh, from this season who, uh, I'll be completely honest, a year ago when he was acquired for Jacob Truba, I didn't know that Neil Pionk could come in and and take a leap forward and like you say kind of learn to do different things as as the as the moment or, or the situation demands it and I thought he had a a very strong season for the Jets now he comes into the NHL via an interesting path uh, a little bit unheralded some some late development and uh in, in passing through the draft what did you see in that player you know coming into the season and then during the season as well to, to have the success that he did well, the first thing I would say to you, Marat, is that, you know, you know, players get acquired and you can't know all the players. There's just no way. And and when you know a player like Jacob Trouba so, so well, you know, okay, what, what does this player offer? I have the luxury, and I, I do consider it a luxury. I've watched Neil Pionk play since he was in the USHL. So, I mean, he was always a player that played what I would call the game on his toes. He was ready to initiate. He was ready to jump into the attack. He was ready to push the pace of the game. He was always competitive. He needed time to mature. And he needed time to mature physically as much as anything. Because, you know, there's certain things that when you're younger and you're not physically mature, you're not going to be able to do uh, uh, to the same level of success that you do once you get that. He goes to college. He he finds that level as he, as he matures 
physically. Now he's now he's maturing mentally and emotionally, and and with that comes confidence. And now he was always a good skater. He always had that initiative, and and he's always been a, a really strong competitor. So now you put it all together, and you know when the when the New York Rangers signed him as a free agent, you, you know I thought again I say this all the time. I don't think there's any downside whatsoever to signing college free agents. You know players don't always. Uh, you know, progress at the same rates. They don't. And, you know, this was a player that had qualities and you say, hey, we're going we're, we're gonna to see what we can do with them. Well, that allows them to acquire Jacob Truba. But now Neil coming to the Winnipeg Jets, you know, he, he had success last year with the, with the New York Rangers. When I say success, as a young player, he saw that he could play in the NHL. And I think what you've seen this year is a player that is just built on that confidence, built and built and built. And he's different than Jacob Truba. He, you know, the Jacob Truba is a, a very unique type of player. But Neil, you know, two things. He had the confidence that he could play in the league. And then you get thrust into a scenario uh, with the Winnipeg Jets with their with the loss of the defenseman that they had. Uh, and... Now you gotta play him. So he, he, the coaches find a way to understand what his game is. He's continuing to build that confidence. And you know, Neil was a was was a really, in my view, Marat, just like you, a really good, solid player for the Winnipeg Jets this year. And and I think he's still got room for for further growth. But you know, it, again, it starts a little bit later. But where you find him now, he's not an old player. But, but he's got some elements and, and attributes in his game that I, that I think are really positive. And when I start to think about Vili Hainola and Dylan Sandberg coming into the, into the group, I mean, I, I have no doubt they're going to play in the 2020-2021 season. You add them to Josh Morrissey and you consider Neil Pionk. I mean, I, I, I think the defense is working its way to being, uh, again, very formidable for the Winnipeg Jets. And Neil Pionk will be, I think, an important part of that. Craig, let's stay on the back end. I mean, you touched on Josh Morrissey. I mean, here's a guy that signed a big ticket in the offseason, became an alternate captain, had a lot of pressure on his shoulders with the departure of all of the defensemen we've talked about. Uh, I mean, I love the fact that he, during his Zoom call, that he talked about that the season was a bit of a grind at times and it was an adjustment. And But he, he saw the value in going through the learning of going through some ups and downs for a guy who had been so consistently going into his career What's the benefit for a guy like him who's now had a couple months to step back at the season and really started to flourish after the arrival of Dylan DeMello once these playoffs get underway? You know, Ken, you just used the term that I think is really important, and it describes what I mean by mental and emotional maturity. You know, valuing the experience that he was going through and understanding it. When you're younger, you're trying to find your way into the league. You're trying to find your way into the lineup. You're trying to earn the trust of the coaches and your teammates. So you don't have that same, okay, you know, I'm okay here. I know it's new for me. It's different, but but, but I'm going to I'm gonna understand and go through it. Josh is an, ex- is an extremely intelligent young man, and he's a very good hockey player. And you you know when you when the Winnipeg Jets said hey we want to extend you and he wanted to be there I mean I think you have two 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 parties that were more than happy uh, to cement that relationship over the long term but he's 25 years old Josh is he's young and now now he's coming into that period of time where he, he he's a real pillar defenseman I you know he I call number two and number three defensemen pillar defensemen the number ones are the number ones we know what they are. He's a pillar defenseman. I, I think if Team Canada is going to the Olympics in 2022, Josh Morrissey's on the team. That's how good I think he is. And, you know, it's it's not uh, th- this player that just excels in one area. He's got such a well-rounded uh, scope to his game. He, you know, he can skate. He can play competitively. He can play in all situations. He can add some offense. I think players like him are incredibly valuable. But, Ken... To your point about valuing the experience and understanding what you're going through, you, you know, you, you, you can tell a 20-year-old player or a 21-year-old player, it doesn't mean that they, they don't want to learn, but are they capable of taking that all in where they're at at that particular point in their career? The timing for the Winnipeg Jets and Josh Morrissey, I think that intersection was just beautiful and perfect for him to be able to continue to grow in his game despite some of the different challenges that the Winnipeg Jets were confronted with. Well, Craig just mentioned the uh, concept of Olympics and Team Canada. So I just want to let everybody know out there that Hall of Famer Chris Pronger 
a multiple gold medalist for Team Canada, is joining Shane O'Brien and Josh Cooper this week on Point Breakaway at The Athletic. So make sure you check out that podcast, Dryden's own Chris Pronger. Uh, Craig, I, I wanted to ask... You named two people that I, I just I wouldn't have been able to get out of this call without asking you about, <laughs> and uh, Vili Hainala and Dylan Sandberg, and you know the the potential they give Winnipeg to make a reasonably smooth transition out of this defensive retool. Um, which one of those guys? And we know Vili Hainala has played in the NHL already, but who do you see making the bigger impact early? You, you, you know what, Brad? I'm going to say that I'm not sure that one has the edge over the other. And, you know, Dylan, you know, three years at the University of Minnesota, Duluth, I mean, he's mature, uh, he, he, he's won, he understands, you know, what he's got to do on a team at any particular moment in time. He's a different defenseman than Billy Hainola. And, and one of the things I love about what the Winnipeg Jets have done, and, and let me emphasize, I love that they've done. They have a mix of defensemen. You know, Pionk's different than Morrissey. Morrissey's different than Sandberg. Sandberg's different than Hainola. And and, and that affords you opportunities to, to, to meet uh, the different challenges over the course of a game. Because not only are those players, in my view, all exceptionally smart hockey players, they all add different elements. So they, they can adapt. You can put them in different scenarios. Dylan, I'll start with Dylan. Dylan is a, is a, is a, big, strong, territorial defenseman. He skates well. He doesn't give up space. He takes you out of your space. He gets the play moving forward out of your own zone. He stops the play from getting in there. Like, and, and, and he's got that, that, that big body presence, but he skates well. He handles the puck well. I don't think he's ever going to be a big point producer, but with all those forwards, those skilled, skilled forwards that the Winnipeg Jets have, what you want to do is allow them to get playing in the offensive zone, to get going through the neutral zone with the speed. Well, Dylan, because he's so good defensively and he's so good at being able to deny entry into his own zone and break up plays in the neutral zone and make those plays, he's going to be able to get the puck into those hands and the offense will come. And I think that it won't be on his score sheet, but it'll be on the team's score sheet, which is incredibly important. Vili Hainola, what I would say to you about him, he beats opponents up with his mind. He, he's just, he's two and three steps ahead of everybody. He, he, he anticipates the play so well. He doesn't engage on, on an opponent's terms for the most part. There's times when you got to go do a battle where maybe you're not, uh, that's, uh, you're not best suited for. But he gets into your space. He gets under opponents. He anticipates the play. He doesn't engage in areas that gives the opponent an advantage. He jumps the opponent before uh, they can jump on him whether it be moving the puck, whether it be using his stick to break up a play, whether it be getting up and not giving that player a chance to start skating where he can impose his size on him. You know, he makes the game look incredibly easy because the mind is always processing at such a fast rate. And he's not going to ever get you with this flash and dash, race up the ice and, you know, get you with this wow moment. But you ask players to play with Vili Hainola, the puck comes clean on their stick. He understands how to compete. He understands how to break up plays. And again, you know, I think both of them, I think Vili coming in and getting a taste of the NHL really helped him going back to the SM Liga and he was allowed to mature. Dylan didn't have that same thing, but he wanted to go and have another year. He matured. I think they're both ready to come in and take take a, a really good place on that blue line for the Winnipeg Jets, Marat. Sticking with prospects and guys who are very smart and mature in their games, uh, how about David Gustafson, speaking of guys who make the guys around them better? I mean, you saw it at the World Junior again. He didn't rack up the incredible point totals, but he always made his line mates better, and he's such a smart player and so advanced. I mean, he might be a guy after the break. He, he might be able to force his way into the lineup right now is, is how sort of how I view this. I mean, it's a long shot, but I think it would be still pretty possible that he gets in the lineup if the Jets happen to go on a run of any kind. Well, you're allowed 28 skaters uh, based on the return to play plan. Uh, and so, 
you know, David started the year in the NHL. As you point out, Ken, he went to the World Junior, and I thought was fabulous. I thought he was uh, outstanding. And, you know, Dave, you just described David, uh, I, I think, perfectly. He makes everybody around him better. And, you know, it's, a, it's that old one plus one equals three with David Gustafson. And, and if you want to look at David and say, oh, yeah, well, he doesn't score, he doesn't put up a lot of points, it's okay. Because what he's going to do is he is going to impose himself on opponents. He's going to impose himself on the game. And because he's so smart, he is able to understand, wait a second, I just got to get the puck here. I got to get the puck here. I got to make this play here so these players that I'm playing with can take advantage of their skill set. You know, I talk about, you know, putting players into positions where they can maximize their abilities. You know, David within his group and his line, he always does that. And, you know, he's big, he's strong, he's competitive. And, you know, all things being equal, you know, you're always going to want the bigger player over the smaller player. Now, all things are not equal. We know that. But David, to me, you know, he's, he, he's, he's a big, strong player that has all the attributes to be a contributor in all what you call the the, the smaller player skill areas. And, and, and that might be not giving enough credit to the bigger players, but David is, is terrific. And, you know, go, you know, him not coming back uh, to Winnipeg after the World Junior, I think that that was a good move for David because it allowed him to continue to work on his puck play. But I think that he's got uh, a really uh, strong place in the Winnipeg Jets lineup for a lot of years to come. You know, he—he—I he, think he can learn from a number of players. He can learn from Adam Lowry the way he plays in, in a certain area of the game. He can learn from Andrew Kopp, who I think really made strides this year. Again, having to do more things in the game and being put in different situations. And obviously, he, he's going to learn by being around skilled players. Because he understands, wait a second here, I don't need to carry the puck when I can get it into Lionel's hands or Kyle Connor's hands or Nikolai Ehlers' hands. That's what I got. And he understands that. And I think that that helps him, uh, you know, come into a lineup and be able to contribute overall, not just individually. Well, David Gustafson represents an absolute hit for the Jets at 60th yeah. overall, a second round pick. I mean, uh, I, I, re I remember thinking in the 2018 entry draft when, when Winnipeg took him that the Jets... You know, they don't need a superstar here, but they've got a hit. There was no first-round pick, and, you know, that's the price you pay to be a contender sometimes. And the Jets continue to kind of be in that mold. There have been some picks traded away. They're entering the, the draft without a luxury of having a lot of draft picks this year. And if you're sitting in that scouting director's chair or that GM's chair, as you have, how do you approach a draft like this if you're the Winnipeg Jets trying to make the most out of it? Yeah, you, you know, Murat, I think that you you, you just hit uh, an important element. You know, it doesn't have to be a superstar. It doesn't have to be a star. Can you get a player that fills a certain area of uh, in your lineup and can contribute in this specific area? And everybody's looking for the stars. No, no, everybody knows that. But when you're picking into the second round, the third round, and later, you're you're trying to find, you're trying to understand. Okay, what is this player's strengths? as opposed to these groups of uh, this group of players strengths and you're looking at five six players at that point in the draft and then you say this is what we want we want the david gustafson i think winnipeg jets the winnipeg jets scouting staff you know kevin shovel day off craig heisinger mark hillier the whole group i think they do an outstanding job i think they do an outstanding job of recognizing okay th these are what these different players offer this is what they have and they don't worry about, oh, is this something that is going to be well-received? I mean, everybody wants things to be well-received, but they, they have the courage of their convictions. They believe in what they're doing. And I think when you look at their record, I think it clearly shows that they should have that. And I don't think it's going to change. I mean, you know, you, you look at the drafting of, uh, of Dylan Sandberg from uh, – uh, high school in Minnesota, Vili Hainola from, from Finland. You know, it, it's not just, they're not just looking at one area of, of, of the world to draft. They're not looking at just one type of player to draft. They have an open mind. And at any point in time, I think they do a really good job of, of understanding what are the strengths of this group of players and who do we want. And then they go out and get it. And I think that I don't think that philosophy is going to change. And, you know, you, you want to be able to get players from different points of the draft. They're not all going to be the same. And if, you're, if, if your whole idea is there's only to get stars, that's okay. And, and that's a philosophy in and of itself. But you, you're now going to be, 
if, if you don't hit on the stars, now you're going to be looking for some other players. And I think the Winnipeg Jets have done a nice job of balancing all that out. Craig, as someone who sat at the table in those jobs that Murat mentioned, I mean, we always hear about the concept of best player available. Does that become even more important or do you have to be a little bit more flexible when you're in a situation like the Jets where you only have four picks, your NHL group is probably deeper up front, but your prospect group is deeper on the back end? I mean, can you just try to explain to folks what best player available means and why it's important? Well, what I would say to you, Ken, is is that if it was if, if it was as simple as best player available, then you would just go down in order. It, it, it's never that simple. Uh, I, I talked about groups of players. You know, so l- let's just use the David Gustafson example. I can guarantee you the Winnipeg Jets were looking at five or six players with that pick. So now what you need to do is, is you need to understand what each of those players' strengths are, what each of those players' developmental needs are. And where do you think they'll fit into your lineup at any at a particular point in time? That's what you have to evaluate first and foremost. And, and then you have to be thorough in understanding, okay, this player offers this, this player offers that, this player offers that, this is what we think we can do developmentally. You know, that you work with your strength and conditioning coaches, you work with your physiologist to understand everything that goes with that. And then you, you have the discussion about, okay, this is what player A offers. This is what David Gustafson offers. This is what player C offers. This is what player D offers. You know, it's not so much, well, player D is the best player, we'll just take them. It's a group of players that you have narrowed down to consider for that pick. And then again, when I talk about the Winnipeg Jets, it comes down to saying, that's the guy we want. And, and it may come down simply to this, okay, he, 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 doesn't have a, he doesn't need as much development as these other players. This area's game is already strong. He might not put up as much offense, but this guy that might be a little bit more offensive, you, you know, he's got more developmental work to do. And, 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 now the, and now that stretches out the uncertainty of that player being able to be able to play in the NHL at some point in time. The more the, more the developmental areas need to be, uh, they need to progress in them. So, again, you might have a better offensive player at that time, but, it, but, but you, so many factors that go in to the selection of a player. If it was as simple as just going 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, it, 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 that would be easy. But you know what? Best player available, I think, has a, has, has, a, has a misnomer about it. It's the best player you think in that particular area of the draft fits what you think is going to help your team in the future. Craig, your discussion of the philosophy, um, I think, applies to the Winnipeg Jets draft coming up very, very well. And we know the draft is going to happen after the uh, the playoffs are, are resumed and, and, and finished. Um, so it's a, it's a little ways away now. But when you look at where they're most likely to draft, the odds seem to favor somewhere in the 10, 11, 12 range. Lots can happen. Draft lotteries of two different types. It's going to be a fun year for that, to be sure. Once you get into that range, I look at, you know, the March 30th Craigslist is the most recent one I found, and it gives the Winnipeg an interesting philosophical problem. You've got, on your list, you've got Hendricks, Lapierre, Connor, Connor Zeri, both centers, both highly renowned. And then at number 12, you've got the, the defensive riser that everybody loves, Jake Sanderson. And I think that's a really interesting situation. Let's say Winnipeg is in that situation where you know their defensive prospects um, you know, that you have ha- Sandberg and Hanela, and even beyond that, you have Chisholm and Kovacevic and a few others that you might look kindly upon. Sen- up at center, it's not quite as, as, um, as bright and glowing. So then do you get tempted by the center in that situation, or is Jake Sanderson's surge up the rankings uh, going to dictate taking him at that spot? Okay, so let me, l- l- let me just go through. So, I, like, you know, uh, if I go through here, and I'm just going to use some comparables here, okay? The, my, my comparables for the, for, for the players we just mentioned, okay? So for uh, Jake Sanderson, I compare him to Mark Edward Vlasic. I, I don't think Jake's going to put up a lot of offensive numbers. He might be like Jonas Brodeen in Minnesota. That's the type of player I see Jake Sanderson as. I, I think he's going to be a longtime NHL player. He's competitive, skates well, but that's what I see him as. Now, when you when we go to Connor Zari, uh, uh, or sorry, let me go to uh, Hendricks Lapierre. Hendricks, obviously, we know that he had the had the, had the medical issues, and you have to be satisfied on the medical. I, I think he's got a Patrice Bergeron type game. 
I, I think if, if, if Hendricks Lapierre would have played the full season, he, he'd be top five. So if you're satisfied, that's my projection. If you're satisfied that the medical is, 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 is fine, then and, and that, that's how you project them. Uh, I mean, those types of two-way centers that are so good and so complete in, in all areas of the game, you know, they're hard to pass up. Now you go to Connor Zari, who I think is in so many ways can play every single situation in the game. I, I call him a Swiss Army knife because he can skate, he can produce points. You know, he can play in different areas. He can play on the wing. He can play in the middle of the ice. You know, he might be able to start on your a uh, little bit down the lineup and contribute in different areas. So when you start to consider, you know, somebody like if you're looking at a Mark Edward Vlasic type, really good player, really important to winning. Patrice Bergeron, obviously really good player, really important to winning. And then a Connor Zari, who to me is, is, is really complete and is, is going to be a real contributor in so many different areas. You, you, I don't know who's the best player is going to be. I can you can go by the you can go by the projections. You can go by my rankings, but that that's now where you distill it down. Okay, so let's just put the medical aside and say everything's good. So now you look at it. Okay, Hendricks, Lapierre, Connor Zari. Do we want to go with the defenseman on the back end? You know, we have Shifley in in order. You know, wh where are we at in terms of our other forwards? Like again, that's the discussions that go on. And so I know what I would do. And and in in terms, of if I had a choice between those three players, but it's it's not as simple as just saying, uh, you know, this is what you got to do. Because if you said to me, Marat, listen, you know what, like let's just because my order would be Lapierre, Zari, Sanderson. But if you made a case for Jake Sanderson, I I, I couldn't sit here and go, you're wrong. I just couldn't. And those are the types of discussions that go on. There's no Connor McDavid in this draft. So it's real simple when you get to the best player argument about Connor McDavid in those scenarios. But the group of players that are in there, and, and, and I mean, those are just a few of them. I mean, whether it be Jack Quinn or Lucas Raymond or Alexander Holtz, I think these are all top-end players that are going to contribute in the National Hockey League uh, for a long time. Craig, let's transition to the offseason. I mean, I guess the draft will be in the offseason as well. But given the economic uncertainty, what impact do you see that having on free agency, especially with what appears to be a flat cap rather than an inflating cap? Well, I mean, again, we talk about collaboration and coming up the return to play plan with the NHL and the NHLPA. It, it, it's going to be exactly the same type of collaboration that's going to be necessary with respect to, you know, what are the revenues? So we, we know what the CBA says. It says, hey, this is, if our revenues are this, or hockey-related revenues are this, 50% goes to the players. Well, if revenues are down, I mean, not only is it going to, it's going to impact teams. And so there's going to have to be, in my view, an artificial working of the system. So if it's a flat cap, you know, what does escrow mean? You know, what what do you do and, and what are the projections going forward? So I, I believe we'll have a lot of clarity on that. We'll have full clarity on that uh, leading into free agency. But once they have the projections on the revenues and then they understand how the system's going to work, not just for one year, Ken, it's going to have to work like artificially, I believe, in, in for, for two or three years. And, as things readjust, the economic engine gets going, you know, optimistic that revenues will pick up again. But you, you don't want to just say to the teams, hey, you know what, this is what the CBA says, you got to be cap compliant. I mean, no, no team would be able to do it based on what the revenue projections are, are, are right now. So you got to do it in a collaborative manner that artificially sets different areas uh, contractually. And then you both know this, what, what teams want, what managers want is just certainty. What, what, do, I what do I have to deal with, right? And what, what, what are uh, the the restraints, the constraints going to be in terms of us going forward. And that's also going to be internal because each team is going to have to consider, okay, what's our own revenue projections, you know, and, and, you know, what are we going to be able to spend? Because that's going to have to factor in too for a, for a period of time. But until we have that, until we know what the system is going to be, and, that, and that's going to be bargain, well, I shouldn't say bargain, but collaborated on, you know, the, the, the managers, uh, right now, don't have an answer for that. But once they have certainty, they've shown time and time again 
that they can manage through that. And, you know, some, some of the decisions are a little bit easier than other ones, but that's where we got to get to. And I, I think that an artificial uh, uh, system will be in place for at least uh, two or three years. European teams are talking about uh, having an under uh, 18 tournament. You know, the Helenka Gretzky isn't going to go on, but they're talking about doing it over in Europe. And sometime in August, end of August, uh, the USA Hockey has announced that they're keeping open the World Junior Summer Showcase dates end of July into August uh, if everything continues to move forward. So the reason I bring that up is, you know, you know, players that are up for the draft would be at those World Junior Summer Showcase events. Uh, you know, the under-20 European events, they play in August, they play in uh, September. You know, they could be going on with players that haven't been drafted. So I wonder what NHL teams might try to do to go over and continue to evaluate. It's another... It's wild. It, yeah, it, fresh it, looks. Yeah, well, and, and, and fresh looks. And, you know, players have, you know, they're four months older, five months older, six months older. You know, so another... It's it, it's very, very interesting to see, you know, how that, how, how that may play into a draft in October. Because if you have a chance for fresh looks, right, Murat, why not take them? Do you think... That, um, you know, if, if, if teams drafted when players were 22 years old, they'd certainly be more accurate than trying to project at 17, 18, 19. Do you think that this is any advantage in, in that sort of respect? I think it could be because keep because one of the things that NHL scouts and teams will tell you is that watching the players down the stretch into the playoffs and then into the playoffs, tournament play in the NCAA internationally, CHL playoffs, you know, it, it's an opportunity to evaluate those players under pressure situations. Nobody's had that opportunity. Well, you, you get more looks at these players now and, and under different circumstances, but it just gives you another chance to see them again, see them again and again. I, I, I'm a believer that, you know, if you can continue to build up your intelligence on the players and, and continue to, you know, add to, to, to what I call the dossier on the player, yeah, I think it could be a real benefit. I mean, let me ask you this, Marat and Ken, and, and you, I mean, you're involved in it. How many times have you seen a draft, or I should say, how many times have you heard after a draft, a draft happens in June, and turn up, you get these events that happen in August or early part of the season, and you go, oh, geez, that player's a lot better than I thought. Oh, geez, that player's a lot better than I thought. Oh, geez, I, I, I didn't have that guy highly ranked. I should have had him higher, right? Or I should have had him lower. So I, it, it goes on quickly. So I think that it could benefit teams in, in a significant way. I mean, two great examples. I mean, no, no better example than the Jets was Shifley, right? He had such oh. a great under 18 and then just skyrocket. And I think another guy, Travis Sanheim, same, same idea, yeah. right? He had a great U18 and all of a sudden you go from being a 28th ranked guy to going 16th or 17th. Absolutely. And, th and those are great examples. And so like how much higher, how much higher could uh, a player uh, uh, go like if, like like if you get more chance to watch them and like even if you're watching them in like a, a U20 event right and and I'm not I'm not talking about specifically the Lucas Raymonds but what about some player that you're trying to figure out you know in the second third round and a group of players you go wait a second that guy's much better right because we see these gems come out of the second round and the third round right and you go wait a second so like you're watching dylan sandberg okay play in, in high school right so i mean he was a he was a really good high school player won, won, won a state championship but what happens now you take away that and, and now you get to watch him in a world junior summer showcase event that now, now the level has gone up. So now you're, you're evaluating him at a different level too. And he starts to show, does he go higher and a team like the Jets don't even get him? So it could work two ways. It could work on a player you really think that uh, you, have a good, you have a good read on and a good beat on. You might not get him as other teams get that read on him. And also, it also potentially uh, you avoid, you know, oh, wait, that player is not as good as I thought. And you might have had them rated high. I mean, that, that's why I always say scouting is not static. And if you're not continuously evaluating, you, you get one shot at a player, you know, as the draft goes. But, you know, what other players did you have rated? You learn from them as well. <laughs> For sure. I mean, wouldn't I mean with what you're talking about? Wouldn't Braden Schneider fall into that category too? I mean, also as a guy who's advanced, like age advanced too, a little bit. Sure would. 
But I mean, just just watching other like all kinds of players can, you know, fall into this. I I think that the player that like you know like again, you see a lot of players that they physically mature, like they, the physical maturity that takes place at times between the ages of 16 and 20 is like, it's like, whoa, like that player has become more just a little bit stronger, a little bit more powerful. You see it from kids in the CHL from 16 to 17. I see it from players, you know, at the U.S. National Team Development Program going from the U17 to the U18. I see it in college. So, you know, it, it, it's going to happen. And now that player has, has that more time to be able to, to catch up and show a little bit more of his potential. So absolutely, I think that it could benefit teams. Neil Pionk told me that exact thing about uh, about Dylan Sandberg. He said he went back to Hermantown uh, at one point for an alumni high school event, and he had to ask his brother, even though he knew who Sandberg was, he had to ask his brother, who's that guy? <laughs> like, he's huge. Yeah. So It's amazing, right? Like, I mean, like, and, and like, Murad, I, I can tell you, I go and watch a player, and you, you know, you watch a player that's five foot seven, five foot eight, like uh, Ridley Gregg, Ridley Gregg. So I've watched Ridley play since he was yeah. in Bantam in Lethbridge, you know, and I, I know Mark well. So I've watched Ridley play since he was in Bantam. You know, I don't know what Ridley was, 5'8", 142 pounds when he got drafted in the Western Hockey League. Yeah, so then he plays midget. Then I watch him come into the Western Hockey League. You know, he's got this desire, but, but, but he can't carry it out. He just can't. He's not physically mature enough, and he's smart enough to know, I'm not going to go try to take on, you know, uh, these players that I can't, you know, get an advantage on. Well, now he comes back as a 17-year-old in his draft year. He's physically stronger. He's got a sense of what the competition is. He's more confident. And that confidence wasn't just from the Halinka gretzky tournament last summer. It's October to December to February. So if you get a chance now to watch Ridley Gregg again in, in August or even September before the draft, you go, wait a second, he's even taken more steps ahead Boy, oh boy, is that it. Like, again, that's a huge advantage, I think, for teams to be able to, uh, you know, potentially uh, look at. I have to say, it's just a, a delight and kind of a renewed energy to be talking about all of this stuff with the perspective light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, we, we all know there's a lot of ifs and ands and health needs to be first and foremost the priority. But to have a plan in place for, for the NHL, to have a sense of what, you know, the teams are looking at. We know that if this happens, it's Jets flames. And that's something we can sort of focus in on. Um, I, I have to say, it's just a, a pleasure to be talking about this stuff with some currency and with some some urgency, Craig. So uh, I really have to say a huge thank you for you taking your time to join us and give us your insights about the Jets current, the draft, all of these different aspects of the game. And it's been a real pleasure for us. Well, thank you, Marat. I, 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 I second what you said. You know, there is a, a renewed energy and, and, and you can feel a spirit. Oh, okay. You know, I'm, I'm having my front door replaced and a couple of the guys that are working on, on replacing the front door, they're all, they're asking me, okay, what do you think uh, hockey, you know, when's it going to be? Who's like, what do you think about this series? And th th that's the conversation that, 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 that really sparks the enthusiasm. And, you know, right away I can, I, I can feel it today. And I think we all can uh, feel it. And, and again, it goes back to, you know, the, the NHL not, not only being leaders in terms of, of announcing a return to play plan, but to me, working on it collaboratively with the players and with all their stakeholders uh, to try to find a way to get back on the ice. It gives us all that opportunity to build on that spirit. The, the kind of chit chat, white noise background of Canadiana, <laughs> right? Like, uh, uh, absolutely. Craig, thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much again for, for joining us. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you, Marat. Thank you, Ken. Always my pleasure. Ken, that was fantastic. I am so glad we had that man on our podcast today. Yeah, just uh, sensational stuff. And I mean, I know we've told some stories uh, that make the other person blush. But I mean, for me, it, I've known Craig for a long time. When I was covering the Manitoba Moose in the American Hockey League, uh, I ran into him at, at an arena, and I believe it was Toronto. And uh, he could not have been more gracious and outgoing and supportive. And when he says anytime and my line is open, he really means it. I mean, he's a guy that uh, has helped me out over the years on a number of different subjects. Uh, lucky to call him a colleague and super happy that he was able to join us. I mean, we could have probably gone for another hour hour or so. I mean, we, uh, we wanted to get into his background and his love for the game and his other jobs. But 
Uh, we'll do that on another time, hopefully uh, around draft time when uh, his his knowledge of the prospects is so valuable as well. Yeah, I mean, he, he wears so many hats and has worn so many hats that, uh, and he also he speaks with such a kind of a combination of passion and and knowledge base coming from all those different um, backgrounds that he's had. That the, the I feel the same as you do that we kind of just scratch to the surface on on that front. Um, another place that we've sort of just scratched the surface is on the return to play talk, and I mean we worked sure. very hard together on a uh, on the return to play piece for the Jets now that the format has been announced. And um, you know what, uh, we've talked a little bit today about Calgary and playing against Winnipeg. We've talked a little bit. The piece certainly will speak for itself. I hope everybody's reading or has read that already at this point. Now, a day later, we've had a chance to hear Andrew Kopp speak. We're about to hear Kevin Sheveldayoff speak. Are there any trickling thoughts that, you know, we've had a chance to sleep on it that are kind of creeping out from your mind about what to look ahead to? Yeah, I mean, I think we were, we were mostly com- prepared for what was coming uh, just based on what was was trickling out over the weekend with the, with the NHLPA vote. But, I mean, I think that it's an important next step. Um, I think the, the fact that there will be some clarity in terms of opponents, in terms of the road ahead. I know, yes, we're not sure if it will be best of five or best of seven uh, for the first two rounds of the actual playoff portion for the 16 teams who are involved. Uh, obviously, the, the draft lottery, uh, you know, that's probably another discussion for another day. But, uh, I mean, I think there are a lot of fine and important details still to follow. But, I mean, I think in terms of the next step, it was it was delivered in a, you know, in a timely fashion. I mean, there's a lot, lot, lot that will be dictated by science and by the virus itself. But uh, I think the other thing that stood out about the calls with Bettman and, and Daly is that overriding thought about health and the importance of health and even Andrew Kopp talking about it. I mean, some things about what the bubble will look like and who will be allowed, those are details that matter to players and, and will be discussed further by Return to Play Committee and and all of those other avenues. So, I mean, I think it was a, is an important next step, but, I mean, we'll see what happens once players get into their respective cities and training camps open at some point in July. Yeah, that's that's phase four. It's the one we're all looking ahead to. Uh, phase three would be training camps, and uh, that's if phase two, which would be small group workouts, go well, and, and those are uh, projected to be starting in, in early June. So, yeah, clearly there's a lot that is still to be determined, and, and the NHL is playing it by ear and watching it out. It's good to have something to look forward to on this front and and just like we were talking about with craig to have a sense of what's to come ken it's been a pleasure as always Um, it's been a delight to talk to you on the boarding pass as always for our listeners out there make sure that you know at the athletics app you can comment and uh and discuss what you just heard if you have thoughts on on craig's comments about the Jets prospects, Sandberg, Hainala, uh, moving forward, the return to play, or even the, the draft upcoming, you can use our app to check in and, and comment and discuss that. Uh, in the meantime, for Ken Weeb, I'm Murata Tesh. This has been The Boarding Pass.